The first reading is from Genesis. It is uh, chapter 50, and it's verses 14 to 26, which is the end of the chapter. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and say, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And a second reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed, conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Peter, and thank you very much for your welcome here this morning. It's a privilege to uh, be able to come and open God's Word with you. Uh, I recently received an email from uh, some of our CMS missionary, uh, CMS Australia missionaries who are working in a remote far, far north of Kenya. Uh, and the husband contacted me to ask some advice because a team of short-term missionaries had just rocked up from the United States of America. And uh, he told me that they belong to an organization whose aim is to complete the Great Commission. Uh, their plan, uh, according to their vision statement, is to create a 180 degree change in all the countries that they're working in 
and, quote, to shift the destiny of nations. Uh, they're working on what they call Project Zero, which aims to see zero countries that have not been transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And their organization's tagline is Train, Transform, Triumph. Well, that desire to see every nation impacted by the gospel is, of course, praiseworthy. Uh, but I want to suggest that such strongly triumphalistic language sits a long way away from the language of the Bible, or at least the language with which the Bible speaks about the ministry of God's people. The Bible certainly speaks about God's glorious triumph. But God usually works out his good purposes through weak and struggling human beings. So while the outcome of Christian ministry might, in God's kindness, be the wonderful growth of the gospel, and we have seen that in church history over the last 200 years, actually the experience of Christian ministry is not usually so marvelous and triumphalistic. And that is not just a New Testament story, I think. Uh, as we'll see this morning, these themes go right back to the start of the Bible story and weave their way right through the scriptures. So you've been uh, here at Inner West in a series working your way through the story of the life of Joseph. And we're in pretty much the final episode of the story today. Uh, and I was asked to preach on all of chapters 42 through to 50. Now, we don't have time to read all of those nine chapters. So what I'm going to do is to start off by giving you an overview of the story. And then we're going to focus just on three specific moments in the narrative that provide us with three theological highlights. So first of all, a bird's eye view of Genesis 42 to 50 and then three theological highlights. So the story in chapter 42 begins at the start of the seven years of famine that uh, Pharaoh's dreams and Joseph's interpretation have told us are going to happen. And the famine is really starting to bite. So up in Canaan, Joseph and his 11 remaining sons are starting to face real difficulty. They're starving. And so Jacob sends his 10 oldest boys down to Egypt to buy food. And of course, he keeps precious little Benjamin with him. Joseph and Benjamin, the special sons of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So those 10 sons arrive in Egypt, they meet Joseph, they don't recognize him, he immediately knows who they are, and he accuses them of being spies and says that he'll only be convinced of their honesty if they come back with their youngest brother that they've told him about, Benjamin. Joseph locks up Simeon, one of the other brothers, and sends the other nine away, but returns their money into their food sacks. They get back to Jacob, and Jacob predictably will not let Benjamin go. So Simeon is left languishing in prison, we are led to assume. But the famine worsens, and it comes to the point where Jacob is left with no choice but to allow the boys to go back to Egypt. 
and he reluctantly now allows all 11 remaining sons, Simeon already in Egypt, 10 remaining sons to go down to Egypt. They arrive, they're given a very warm welcome. Uh, A feast is thrown at Joseph's table. Benjamin is served twice as much food as everyone else, even though he's the smallest boy. And when they're ready to leave, Joseph's servants, uh, on Joseph's instructions, hide Joseph's special silver goblet into Benjamin's food sack. The brothers set off home with all their food, and then the Egyptian servants stop the brothers and expose an apparent theft. Joseph threatens to make Benjamin a slave, but at that point in the story, Judah steps in and intercedes for his brother. When that happens, this is the denouement, Joseph breaks down and reveals his true identity to his brothers, and the family is reconciled in the chapters that follow. So Jacob brings uh, all of his family down, into, down from Canaan into Egypt to live. And the story ends in the last days of Jacob's life. Jacob blesses Pharaoh, then blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and then pronounces a blessing over each of his own children before he dies. The book ends with Joseph's death, Bones are very important in the book of Genesis. It's very interesting. Uh, Jacob dies and the family take him back to Canaan and bury him there. Joseph dies and his body is not buried in Egypt because he does not belong there. He's embalmed in a coffin and later we hear that he's buried back in the promised land. Now, When you think of the story of Joseph, which bits do you usually remember? I reckon that we're most familiar with the early bits of the story of Joseph. So if I asked you to tell me the story of Joseph, I think you would tell me about the dreams, the technicolored dream coat, Joseph's betrayal by his brothers, you'd probably tell me about Potiphar and you'd definitely tell me about Mrs. Potiphar. And then, of course, there's Pharaoh's dreams. And we tend to think of this part of the story of the journey of the brothers up and down, kind of backwards and forwards between Canaan and Egypt. It's just the happy ending with a bit of a twist. But actually, this part of the story, the journey of the brothers backwards and forwards, is exactly half of the narrative of the story of Joseph. There's four chapters on the dreams and the coat and Mrs. Potiphar and all that stuff. And then there's four chapters that describe the journey of the brothers between Canaan and Egypt. And that suggests that at least the writer of the book of Genesis thinks that the material we're looking at this morning is very significant. So let's move on and look at this part of the story in a bit more detail. And what I would like to do is to point you to three theological highlights. And each of these highlights creates a a series of connections for us. So the first highlight helps us to put the story of Joseph together. The second story helps us to put the story of Joseph together into the context of the book of Genesis. 
And the third highlight helps us to put the story of Joseph into the context of the whole Bible. So we're going to try and tie together the story of Joseph, then the story of Genesis, and then Joseph and the story of the whole Bible. And the first highlight, which comes in chapter 44, and I'm going to read this passage in a moment, uh, I've called Judah's Reconciliation. So the first highlight, Judah's Reconciliation from chapter 44. Now, to get what's going on here, we need to remember the backstory. So you remember that uh, Joseph had his dreams. His brothers were fed up with him because he was an arrogant little upstart. Uh, They talk about killing him. But Reuben, who is the eldest son and therefore is the leader of the brothers, he doesn't want to see Joseph killed. And so he talks his brothers into throwing Joseph down a well. And we're told in the text that Reuben plans to come back later and rescue Joseph. But Judah, Judah is the one who has other ideas. And while Reuben is absent, Judah talks his brothers into selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites. So Judah is the ringleader who sees Joseph sold into slavery. That happens in chapter 37. And then there's an apparent break in the Joseph narrative in chapter 38. And that is the disgraceful story of Judah's behavior towards his daughter-in-law, Tamar. We haven't got time to go into all the details, but Judith's, Judah's disgraceful behavior brings terrible shame on the whole family. Now jump forward to the passage we're looking at today. The brothers return home after the first trip to Egypt. They tell their father Jacob that the prince of Egypt, they don't know that it's Joseph, is demanding to see Benjamin. At the end of chapter 42, Reuben steps into leadership and offers his own two sons as a pledge against Benjamin's life, an offer that Jacob refuses. But from that point forward, Reuben disappears from the story, almost completely. Very startling, particularly in a culture where the eldest son would normally be expected to take the lead and usually has the role almost of the father. And from this point forward, who is it who leads the brothers? Well, it's Judah. Judah, the ringleader. Judah, who sleeps with prostitutes. Judah, Judah, who has disgraced his daughter-in-law. So in chapter 43, it is Judah not Reuben, who persuades his father to allow Benjamin to travel down to Egypt. And in chapter 44, when the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack, it's Judah who takes the lead and speaks on behalf of his brothers. That brings us to chapter 44, verse 30. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd like to open it at that point... Genesis chapter 44, verse 30. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because I love it. So this is Judah speaking to Joseph. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. 
If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as your, st as your slave instead of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't, be, I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Now this is the turning point in the story. And Judah realizes back in verse 16 that God's judgment has fallen on him and his brothers. He realizes that in this turn of events, their sin is being exposed. The only person who is not guilty of that original crime is Benjamin. But it seems that it is going to be Benjamin who will suffer the punishment for his brother's crime. And so what Judah does now is to offer himself into permanent slavery in place of Benjamin, he offers himself as a substitute and he's willing to lay down his own life so that Benjamin might be set free. And this is Judah, Judah, the ringleader, Judah, the one who sold Joseph into slavery. He now offers to become a slave himself because he has finally been convicted of his evil behavior. And what he is offering to do here is to pay a penalty, to make atonement, and then to lead his family into reconciliation. And so it's this moment that is the turning point in the Joseph narrative. And it's also the theological high point in the Joseph narrative because this is the point where the themes of sin and judgment and punishment and atonement and reconciliation all come together for us. Now, of course, sin and judgment and punishment, atonement and reconciliation are the story of our relationship with God. But they're also the story of our human relationships. And the Joseph narrative pulls those two themes together for us. And it certainly means that one of the lessons out of this story is that God is interested in healing the messy dysfunction that we often live in. I was talking to a friend the other day who was telling me about a family that he knows and loves, a family where the parents have put immense, immense pressure on their university-aged son to achieve highly uh, in his final exams. And this boy is cracking under the pressure. He can't meet his parents' expectations, and it's driving him to feeling depressed and suicidal. And his parents are devastated that he's not achieving, but don't see that they have any part to play in the story. Their narrative is that they've always wanted the best for him, and the whole family system is in an utter mess. 
But the mess of that family system is nothing like the mess of the family system of Jacob's boys. Think about who we see in this story. Joseph starts uh, at the beginning in chapter 37 as an arrogant little upstart. It's uh, kind of easy to see why his brothers are irritated by him. But it is not okay to see their jealousy and then their murderous hearts. Jacob, as we read the narrative, turns uh, from a bit of a trickster into, frankly, a whiny, self-obsessed, narcissistic old man. He makes it all about himself. And yet, despite all of the human mess of this story, God is at work to bring atonement and reconciliation. And that makes this a gospel story. It's deeply significant in the flow of the Old Testament that it is Judah, not Reuben, who is at the heart of this gospel story. Because as the Old Testament unfolds, it is the tribes of Judah and Benjamin who become the southern kingdom that survived destruction, that become the remnant of the exile. It is through the line of Judah that a Messiah is promised. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the work of atonement that Judah points us to is a work that is completed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So Judah, in many ways, is the person who ties the Joseph story together theologically. But let's move on now to a second highlight, and this is Jacob's blessing in chapter 47. So turn over to chapter 47, and uh, I'll read from verse 5. Genesis 47, verse 5. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Now that your father and brothers have joined you here, choose any place in the entire land of Egypt for them to live. Give them the best land of Egypt. Let them live in the region of Goshen. And if any of them have special skills, put them in charge of my livestock too. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. How old are you? Pharaoh asked him. Jacob replied, I've traveled this earth for 130 hard years, but my life has been short compared to the lives of my ancestors. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh again before leaving his court. Now that highlight helps us to pull the threads of the whole book of Genesis together because the theme of blessing has been very central and important in the theology of the book of Genesis. You remember that Genesis begins with the account of creation and God speaking a blessing at different days of creation. So he blesses the fish and the birds, he blesses the animals and the humans, and then he blesses the seventh day. God blesses creation, but that blessing is marred by human rebellion. And so as the story after the fall progresses, God's blessing narrows in. 
So when Noah emerges from the ark after the flood, God speaks a blessing on Noah and his offspring. But strikingly, he doesn't speak a blessing on the animals who come out of the ark. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God's blessing narrows further onto just Abraham and Sarai, who become Abraham and Sarah. God's blessing, it seems at this point, is much more limited, not now on all humanity, but just on one family. But God makes it clear when he blesses Abraham that his purpose in blessing Abraham is that through him, all the families of the earth might be blessed. So God is blessing a particular family so that through that family, God's blessing will reach to the nations. Now, what happens in the second half of Genesis 12 after that promise is given? Abraham, in the second half of Genesis 12, systematically abandons each of those promises. So he leaves the land. He abandons Sarah, his wife, into Pharaoh's harem. He goes down into Egypt. And instead of being a great name, as God has promised, his name becomes a disgrace. And instead of being a blessing to Pharaoh's family, he's actually a curse on them. And Pharaoh chases Abraham and Sarah out of his, family, out of his, his land. So this moment in Genesis 47 is an extraordinary turnaround and fulfillment It's an extraordinary thing that Jacob is even allowed into Pharaoh's throne room. Imagine Pharaoh. He is not only the ruler of the greatest superpower of his time, he's also considered a god. He's sitting on his throne. Think of uh, the gold and the jewelry of people like Tutankhamun. This is who Pharaoh is. That he even allows Jacob into his throne room is remarkable. It would be extraordinary if Pharaoh were to bless Jacob. But that isn't what happens. Pharaoh receives a blessing from Jacob. So extraordinary that the writer tells us that it happens twice in verse 7 and verse 10. And so God's promises to Abraham are being fulfilled not completely, it's only partial and incomplete. But this moment ties together the story of the book of Genesis for us. And that leads us to the third highlight, which comes in the passage that was read to us earlier. Uh, and this highlight I've called Joseph's Theology. So if the first highlight helped us to pull the story of Joseph together and the second highlight helps us to pull the story of Genesis together, this highlight helps us to pull the story of the Bible together. Verse 16 of chapter 50. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, the brothers say to Joseph, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. 
His brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we're your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. So Jacob has died, and now the brothers are scared. Surely they think now it is Joseph's time to get retribution. Surely now this is the moment for payback. So they come and throw themselves at Joseph's feet, and again they offer themselves to become slaves, the theme of slavery coming back through again. But fortunately for them, Joseph has learnt some theology. He does not see this as an opportunity for payback. Joseph sees that God has been at work. And he's able to discern that through the months and through the years, God has been working out a rescue plan. So the Joseph story helps us to see how the whole Bible fits together because it shows us how our God works. So let me just wrap up by suggesting three ways that the Joseph story connects us to the whole Bible. First of all, the Joseph story teaches us that God's purposes are about atonement and reconciliation. It would be easy to read the Joseph story and think that this is just about a rescue from famine. But the heart of the story is not really about a rescue from famine. It's about the rescue of a family. It's about reconciliation. The broken family relationships are restored, but they're not only restored. The sin is also brought into the open and owned and dealt with. For sin to be truly dealt with, a penalty must be paid. And in the Joseph story, Judah offers to pay that penalty. And because he makes that offer, forgiveness is graciously given. So it's when Judah offers to pay that penalty that Joseph knows that his brother's heart has finally been changed and that restoration is possible. And those big ideas then become the central theme of the rest of the Bible. So when we turn over the page from Genesis 50 to Exodus chapter 1, it's no surprise to us that the central rescue moment in the story of the Exodus is not the crossing of the Red Sea, but is the death of the Passover lamb. And that's not a surprise to us even at the end of Genesis because we've already seen that theme in the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. So we're not surprised when we read the Passover story because we've seen these themes before. We're not surprised when we see these themes in the story of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 going like a lamb to the slaughter. We're not surprised when we see a crucified Messiah because the whole Old Testament has been leading us inexorably to that point. 
atonement and reconciliation lie at the heart of God's rescue plan. The second way that the story of Joseph connects us to the themes of the whole Bible is because Joseph teaches us that God works in and through human history. God works inside the mess of a dysfunctional family. He works within the pain of slavery. He can work through libel. He can work through slander. He can work through false accusations of adultery. Our God is at work when you're chucked down a well. He's at work when you're thrown into prison. He's at work when you're elevated into leadership. Now, of course, that doesn't excuse human sin. Jacob's favoritism of Joseph then Benjamin is not okay. Joseph's arrogance is not okay. The brothers' murderous plans and intentions are not okay. And yet... God works within human rebellion to achieve his purposes. And so despite all of those parts of the story, we get to Genesis 47 and the promises that God made to Abraham are being fulfilled. And our God works out his perfect plan through the mess and the pain of human history. The third way that the Joseph story connects us to the themes of the whole Bible is that it shows us that our God works through human weakness. Now, when you stop and think about it, there are many ways that God could have saved Jacob and his family from starvation. If this was just about rescuing a family from a famine, well... The Bible gives us a number of options that God does, in fact, bring into play in other narratives. He could have sent manna from heaven. He could have sent ravens with loaves of bread in their beaks. He does that for the people of Israel. He does that for Elijah. He could have withheld the famine from Canaan and only inflicted it on Egypt. But instead, God chose deliberately that Joseph should go to Egypt as a slave that Joseph should rot in jail God deliberately chose to work his rescue through human weakness and suffering and so Joseph points us to a pattern that runs through the rest of the Bible Again, we turn over the page, Moses, hardly your conquering hero, a man who runs away from God and begs him, God, please just send someone else. David, King David, the smallest and most insignificant of his brothers, Isaiah, pointing us to a suffering servant and then a promised Messiah who dies naked on a cross. And then on to us as God's people today. Who are we? Well, we're jars of clay. Frail, weak people 
to whom God has deliberately entrusted the jewel of the gospel. And friends, that's not a mistake or an accident. It is God's good design. Throughout the Bible, God chooses to work through weak, frail, sinful, and broken human beings to work out his plan and purpose. And that means that Christian ministry and Christian mission is not designed to feel like a wonderful triumph. It is designed to feel difficult. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul tells us that the experience of Christian ministry feels like death. That's what he says. Death is at work in us, but life in you. And that is God's design so that everyone would know where the power comes from. The power comes from God and not from us. You see, Christian mission is not a Pharaoh-like triumph. It is a Joseph-like suffering. And so the story of Joseph points us clearly to the cross. It points us not only to the message of the cross, but also to the model of the cross. The Joseph story is a story about atonement and reconciliation. And in that sense, it points us to the message of the cross. But the Joseph story is also a story of how God works out his purposes through human weakness and suffering. And in that sense, he points us to the model of the cross. And it is the story of human weakness that is the story of Christian mission. The story of Christian mission is not a bunch of short-termers rocking up to train, transform, and triumph. The true story of mission is people like Adoniram Judson, who was so broken by suffering that he dug his own grave and spent six months kneeling in front of it wondering whether he had the strength to continue. It's the story of a man like Roland Allen, whose ideas were almost completely rejected in his own lifetime, but who became the key thinker behind the church growth movement. Really, it's the story of thousands and thousands of ordinary men and women who've left their homes and laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. People who understand that death is at work in us, but life in you. Well, why don't we pray that we would be people like Joseph, who embody not only the message, but also the model of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Joseph. Uh, thank you for this beautiful narrative in the Old Testament and for the way that Joseph points us so clearly to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please wait, may we be men and women who not only proclaim this good news, but model what it means to be suffering servants. We pray that death might be at work in us, but life to the world around us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.